Good morning. It's good to see everyone here today, uh, especially if you're visiting with us. We're surely happy uh, to have you. We still have some of our own members who are vacationing, uh, and after result maybe of, uh, of Thanksgiving. And what in the world? Jared and Ariel are never supposed to come without giving me a heads up. I might have a heart attack. Uh, <laughs> so nice to have them uh, be here from the, uh, uh, my, my home in San Diego, uh, former home in San Diego. Now I'm at home here. So, uh, but uh, but good, good to see everyone. Uh, it is uh, maybe a little out of sorts for you to think, well, all of a sudden Barry's going to do a sermon on marriage. But it is something that uh, uh, I try to do on a regular basis, something that has to do with our relationships. And we have been doing lessons on relationships in the body, and it is important that we talk about a relationship in marriage. So I thought I'd do a little marriage refresher here uh, this morning. Uh, in case you're wondering, uh, this is uh, more significant than what you might think. We tend to go, oh, marriage, yeah, I think I've got that. Uh, but please realize that the Bible begins with marriage, and the Bible ends with marriage. And it doesn't matter whether you are single or married or have been married. The Bible begins with marriage and ends with marriage, and Ephesians 5 is Paul's grand conclusion as to why God has done what he has done for all of us. When our marriages are not seen properly, whether single, whether you're single or not, when our marriages are not seen as they should, our church and God's people will be destroyed. Our purpose in God will be destroyed. Because everything that we have is based upon a relationship with Christ, and that relationship is seated and founded in marriage. We are called the bride of Christ. And Paul's whole point in the text of Ephesians 5 begins and ends with the fact that he is dealing with the relationship that we have with Christ. It is difficult to recognize how that fits unless we recognize what marriage is like. Always has interested me that Paul said, okay, here's how marriage is supposed to be, but I'm not talking about marriage primarily. I'm really talking about Christ and the church. And you know the problem with that in the 20th and 21st centuries? We don't know what marriage is. And how can we then <laughs> relate that to our relationship with Christ. We're so fouled up with marriage, Paul couldn't do that today. He would have a hard time describing it today. So is it important? Yes. Extremely important that we understand what this relationship looks like so that we can appreciate the relationship that we have with Christ. And we can appreciate what it means to serve Christ and what Christ actually did for us. Marriage was given by the Lord to solve loneliness. He said to the man, he said concerning the man, it is not good that man would be alone. 
I will make him a helper suitable for him. The word helper that he used is the same word he used in the rest of Scripture to refer to himself, God being the helper to all of us. Significant that he brought these two people together who would, who would then do this work and mirror what God would do then in the church and for us. Please remember now as we introduce this that this all began in Ephesians 4 and verse 1 when Paul said and encouraged the brethren to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Marriage is part of and how we handle our marriage and how we look at marriage is part of what it means to walk worthy according to the calling that he has given us. And that is extremely significant. However, you may be a Bible believer, and I'm sure everyone here is a Bible believer in one sort or another. But to trust God, when He talks about what marriage is supposed to be, and what the roles of husbands and wives are supposed to be, and how love and sex and marriage and children fit into God's plan. I don't think there's any area of life that is more challenging for us to actually trust Him when it comes to marriage. No relationship presses harder on us to cause us to want to go our own way when it comes to our marriage. When we walk through our door the front door of our house and shut that door somehow some way we now have excluded God and we're going to run this house the way we think we ought to run it and when pressures come up we're going to react in ways that God did not allow us to react we must be very very careful I don't think there is anything that is more challenging than that this is all grounded in the authority of God. And when we think about obedience, we think, oh yes, we must obey God in all things. Will we accept that when it comes to the relationship that we have in marriage, even in marriage. Consider for a moment what we see in this text that emphasizes the authority of God in the text. You'll see in verse 32 that we, as we have mentioned, this is a mystery that is profound. Paul said that he's referring to the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is then the basis for what we should see in the grander way in our relationship with Christ. It's rooted in marriage. If marriage is not properly ordered, then we are not reflecting what eventually we should enjoy in our relationship with Christ. Secondly, you see in verses 22 and 24 that when he speaks of the wife, he says, as unto the Lord or as the church submits to Christ. This is an authoritative emphasis there. When he talks to the husband, he does the same thing. You are to nourish and cherish her and to sacrifice your life and lay down your life just as Christ did for the church. There is a root of authority that is placed in that. 
And this is not an option, and this is not something that we can say, well, uh, in our marriage we do it this way. No, in, in your marriage you can sin by doing it your way, or you can do it God's way. And this is based upon the authority, the authority of God. Uh, in verse 31, the quotation that he gives to describe marriage is based in Genesis 2.24, and he describes that as, again, the foundation for the greater marriage of Christ and the church. It's not culturally grounded. So many times in relationships, and, and whether it be uh, in the church or uh, in marriage, uh, or even sometimes in government, people think, oh, well, this is culturally grounded. God doesn't expect us in this culture to do what He's asked us to do. When in actuality, He's rooted this in the beginning. And this is not something that we can just adapt to our culture. We have to be as God would want us to be. But here is the... I think, great way to look at this, just as Nebuchadnezzar responded when he learned about who God is. He, he said these words, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say, can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This is an absolute we must submit ourselves to God when it comes to the relationship of marriage and how that is going to affect us in our relationship with the church. Isn't it interesting to you that in verse 21, when he introduced this, he started with submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God? Why would he start with that? Because his emphasis is not simply marriage. It is the greater emphasis of how the body operates as a bride together with Christ and in submission to Christ. And therefore, that is reflected in how we submit to one another, how we lay our lives down for one another. All this is key to what God is doing with us. Consider then this. Here's our problem. It's been a problem of every person who ever said, I do, and then began to work out that, that marital relationship. Well, yes, I know, but you don't understand who I have to live with. You don't understand my marriage. You don't understand the challenge that I have to deal with, with my wife or my husband. Oh, come on. Every person who's ever been in those situations knows what it is like. Well, you have a good marriage. You have no idea how bad it was at times, how difficult it was at times, how I had to grow, how challenged each of us are in order to get to that particular point. Why do you think God put us in this situation? Why did he put all of us together and say, you're not allowed to separate from each other? Why did he put us in a marriage and say, you're not allowed to separate from each other? Why did he do that? Because he's forcing us to learn to love. Forcing us to learn to love. You shall not divide. 
You shall not. You shall not separate. He's forcing us to learn to love. And there's only one way to get there. It's by going through hard times and tough times and forcing yourself to discipline yourself to do what you're supposed to do regardless of what anyone else does. Because you and you alone, first and foremost, are learned to love. Not point the finger and why doesn't he or she love the way she ought to do? Why don't I love the way I ought to love? This is the picture that he's offering us very, very clearly throughout this text. Here is, here's the world's view of marriage. Uh, a, a, man called, a man named John Witt explains this. He's a historian, and he says, he said, there, is a, there has become a new view of marriage that has emerged from the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, century enlightenment. Older cultures taught their members to find meaning and duty by embracing their assigned social roles and carrying them out faithfully. During the Enlightenment, these things began to shift. The meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her. And then this final quote here. Instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage has been redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. We don't feel that because we grew up in the culture that's different, but the, it wasn't always the way it is today. People actually realize the importance of duty and responsibility above their own desire for self-actualization. This business that's going on in our country is the most sinful thing that one could ever see. And it's been reflected repeatedly in other societies and cultures throughout, this, throughout history and throughout the Bible. Therefore, really, the root of marital problems is so often just based on spouses seeking meaning in marriage through self-fulfillment instead of self-denial. When we approach any relationship in which our goal is self-fulfillment, we have ruined the very way that Jesus gave us the example of what it means to live in this world on this planet. Do you see Jesus walking about, living and acting in such a way that he would find self-fulfillment and self-actualization? Do you see the Apostle Paul when he says, be imitators of me, that he is showing us that you need to find self-fulfillment? He is actually showing us that fulfillment comes in God, not in finding my own personal fulfillment. I 
chuckle a lot of times when marriage is seen then as just meeting these personal goals and the needs of many have to be subjugated to the desires of one had a premarital counseling session just a just a few years ago in which as we got down to the couple's relationship and how this was going to act out and work and stuff and the man's just shrugged his shoulders and says well I'm living wherever she can find her job because her career is number one in our marriage. I'm, I'm speechless. I said, so you're not going to have a marriage that is reflecting what you see in the Scripture. Huh? You're going to do it your way. Is that right? Well, well, yeah, but she makes more money. She's smarter. Who cares? I don't care if she's got 20 PhDs. Are you going to do your marriage the way God said to do it or not? No, we're not. Bye-bye. This kind of rebellion has been accepted as culturally good, and yet it is destructive and sinful. you consider for a moment that marriage today is often based on compatibility and finding a soulmate that's that's kind of popular isn't it i remember my sons asking me the question what's more important you know is how important is compatibility you know they're dating and trying to figure this out how important is compatibility and i said well not not it's it's nice but not very in the broad scheme. Adaptability is really important. <laughs> because when you think of having a soulmate, what you don't realize is that then you're beginning to look at things as I am expecting them to complete me and to fulfill me. And what we don't realize is that we make a vow till death do us part. It's not a vow to the person that we're marrying now. It's the vow about the person who he or she will be. We're vowing to give our lives to them, all of our lives. And every few years, we all change. And things evolve, and we move, and we, we grow, hopefully. And we have to be those who are going to find our sacrifice for the one that they will be not just the one who they are right now seeking fulfillment in anything other than god is seeking fulfillment in the wrong place if you struggle in your marriage There's one thing that almost always is true. You're expecting your spouse to fulfill you. To do things that would make it so that you're going to be happy and fulfilling. The one thing that's sure true, Teresa would be utterly disappointed <laughs> if she thought that way. 
I'm not a perfect husband. She's not a perfect wife. It's perfect for me. But I'm going to find my fulfillment in God, and so must she. Our fulfillment is only in Him. And when we start expecting that a person, whether it be a friend or a spouse or whoever, whatever, is going to bring us the ultimate inner fulfillment and satisfy those greater inner needs, we are idolaters. And we are expecting someone to become the God that will take care of our needs. And when we expect that of someone, that's when there's problems. Because none of us can meet up to it. Two sinful people get married. Two flawed people get married. Two people with different backgrounds and different baggage get married. And they must deal with their own sins and flaws and grow together to overcome those together, but not from the standpoint of let me be your God to fulfill me, but let me grow together with you and have you help me become like God and be in God's image. So when we look at it that way, let's think about the foundations for a godly marriage that is emphasized in this. First, of course, we see these words that we have noted. This mystery is profound, verse 32. And I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. So chapter 3 of, of uh, Ephesians, verse 10 and 11. Paul said that all of the things that he's done, bringing us to this particular point, he has done so that the church can be to the manifold wisdom, can show the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Your marriage, the relationships in this church, and the way we handle that with the love and unity that God calls upon us to have, that is God's showcase to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places of His manifold wisdom. That is God's way of presenting to the universe His beautiful relationship that He's created that before Christ was an utter mess and with Christ brings everything together to reconcile both heaven and earth to Him. This is such a powerful answer to the objection that is often given that marriage is inherently oppressive some way. Young men oftentimes do not want to get married because I want freedom and I don't want to have to, uh, have to give myself up for someone else. And young women sometimes either get married and grumble about it or don't want to get married because they don't want to have to grumble about it in submission. And not realizing Jesus was submissive to the Father and found glory because of it. And Jesus led husbands as a sacrificial leader, a sacrificial headship, so that they could find glory. And the church submits to Christ and submits to one another so that we can find glory. This whole picture of getting to glory comes through the giving up of self for the grander cause 
of showcasing God to the world and what He's done. And if we do not have that love and aren't pushing ourselves through hard times to maintain that love, we've disappointed God. we failed God. We've become Israel of old who ruined everything that He tried to do for them and intends to do then through us. Marriage only works fully and beautifully when it's reflecting the way God has given us His relationship with us. Who knew when we read Genesis 2, I will make a helper suitable for him. And he made Adam go to sleep and he took one of his ribs and he created a woman and he brought her to the man and, she, and he exclaimed, this is, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they should become one flesh. Who knew when we read those words that God was exclaiming, I want you to learn something about what I'm going to do for you and how I want you to be my bride and that this is going to be a picture, a little taste of that heavenly glory that one day you will have with me. I don't think we realize sometimes that there is a gospel in marriage just like there is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these gospels are parallel. Isn't it interesting that Paul used crucifixion as the foundation not only for Christ and what Christ has done for us, but he used the crucifixion as a foundation of marriage. There's a gospel picture in marriage. Look at, the, look at the parallel here between the gospel and marriage itself. Sinful, flawed people are forgiven and accepted in Jesus. And in marriage, we use the power, the same power of forgiveness and acceptance that Jesus gave us in order to transform us into a people who love more deeply because we now have been given the strength and the ability to forgive and accept the flawed person we're married to. In each case, it is the gospel. It is the gospel that is presented as we lay ourselves, our lives down and take up a cross and live our lives that way. Not only in the world, not only in the church, but certainly within the closed doors of our home. Notice also that Paul began this discussion back in chapter 5 and verse 18 when he said, Be filled with the Spirit. And I would suggest to you that reveals how important it is for us to be godly people, to be filled with who God is, to be filled with His character and His nature, and to be transformed into His image if we are going to have the kind of marriages we ought to have. Somebody says, oh, I, I, I want to get married so badly. Your first obligation 
is to want to be the bride of Christ so badly that you would be conformed to his image because you will be an attractive person to attractive people when you are spiritually attractive and you are transformed that way. Submission is not uncomfortable when we're filled with the Spirit. Because in submission, we have already given up our lives. In submission, we have already become poor in spirit and recognize we are nothing without Him. And therefore, submission is not uncomfortable. A man laying his life down for his wife is not uncomfortable, is not difficult when he is filled with the Spirit. When he is taking on the image of Christ, he is doing what Jesus has already done. And it brings him to glory. And it brings him to the greatest fulfillment that he could ever have. God's roles here are so critically important. It gives us the strength we need to fuel our marriage. Try sacrifice and being filled with Him. We get our fullness from God and it frees us from being frustrated and demanding toward one another or toward our spouse. It frees us from those things because we're not expecting our spouse or someone else to do what only God can do because we're giving up our lives. And there's one other thing that we need to talk about here, and that's the covenantal relationship of marriage. Marriage is spoken of as a covenant. Proverbs 2 and verse 17. Malachi chapter 2. It is a covenant. You know how God feels about a covenant. Most of you should. If you don't, try, try, on, try on Jeremiah chapter 35. The covenant with the Rechabites. God despises covenant breakers. He doesn't put up with it. It is the strongest concept that God has given. He came to this earth and shed His blood so that we could touch it. And He could touch it and say, may both of us be killed like this if we do not keep this promise. It's the strongest that it is. And in that covenant relationship, it solves our vulnerabilities. It creates in us endurance, and it creates in us protection. Consider what the covenantal aspect of marriage does. When two people begin to love each other and looking forward to possible marriage. When they do that, there's all kinds. You remember the dating? All the vulnerabilities, all the worry, all the concern. Will this work out or not? Will they stick with me or not? My, this last letter I got says, Dear John, and still, instead of, Hey, do I love you? But covenant, covenant, 
solves those vulnerabilities. In a covenant, we don't say things like, well, I love you, but we don't need to get married. I love you, but, you know, if you don't meet up to my standards, then we'll break up. I love you now, but not necessarily what you might be in the future. What we're really saying is, I don't love you enough to curtail my freedom for you. That's what this whole society has moved toward. That's not what God has given us in this love relationship. Living together without a covenant? you imagine? Living together without a covenant means, means that you have to prove yourself every day. Make sure he or she won't leave. Imagine your relationship with Jesus that way. You, ever, you don't have to imagine it. I don't have to imagine it. Because we've lived that way without understanding grace. We live that way where we're wondering when he's going to dump us. When he's not going to love us anymore. When he's not going to stay with us anymore. And we lived on a system of works. Am I good enough today to have him to, to save me or to have him in my life? Am I good enough today? And God killed that by entering into a covenant with us. He entered into a covenant with us. You can trust Him. And we have a covenant of trust. And with that covenant of trust, it takes away those fears, those vulnerabilities, and it creates a protection for us for our children, for our society, for the foundation of what life should be on this earth. Beautiful picture. Studies show that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will be happy in five years if people stay together. Why is that? Because they honored a vow. And that, that'll go up after 10 years. And it'll go up after 20 years. And it'll get better and better if our commitment is to be filled with the Spirit and to honor God. And to be what we ought to be in the, in the sight of God. The Bible begins... With the wedding of Adam and Eve. And it ends with the wedding of Christ and the church. And we are to reflect that kind of commitment and covenant and love in our local body, in our local family, and in our marriages. And if we cannot do that, we have lost the very foundation of saving a lost world. And that's how important it is. We can be of help to you in any way. We urge you to, to take a step about that this morning. We'd love to, to, to provide whatever help we can. If you're not a Christian, you know what you need to do, let's do it. Let's get that done today. While together we stand, while we sing.